0: Welcome to the Master's in Psychology podcast, where psychology students can learn from psychologists, educators, and practitioners to better understand what they do, how they got there, and hear the advice they have for those interested in getting a graduate degree in psychology. I'm your host, Brad Schumacher, and today we welcome Dr. Andy Clements to the show. Dr. Clements is a professor and assistant chair in the Department of Psychology at East Tennessee State University and has been at ETSU for almost 27 years. She is also the co-founder and president of Uplift Appalachia and associate director of research design and implementation of the ETSU Ballad Health Strong Brain Institute Today, we will learn more about her academic and professional journey and discuss how she is applying her education and experience to help churches and other organizations care for those with addiction, addictions and mental health challenges. Andy, welcome to our podcast.
1: Thanks. Thanks for having me.
0: I am excited to talk about your academic journey and how you are applying your passions uh, to all these different areas. But to start off a general question. What made you gravitate toward counseling and psychology?
1: Wow. Um, it, it would be sad to say, but it was a boyfriend um, oh. <laughs> in college. I had a, I, I dated a fellow who was in psychology and my mom wanted me to be an engineer and he ended up being an engineer and I ended up being a psychologist and I wow. didn't marry him. So
0: <laughs> okay. But you stuck with it.
1: I stuck with it. I stuck with it. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, good. And and if you've seen some of our podcasts in the past, what we normally do is go through your academic and professional journey, so to speak. And I see that you attended the University of Alabama for your uh, Bachelor of Science in Interdisciplinary Counseling. Yes. At what point did you know that you wanted to get your counseling degree?
1: Um, that was actually early, fairly early on, I was in a program, this was the 70s, um, you kind of do your own thing, and they had a program called New College, and in New College, you could make your own degree, which sounds kind of lame, but you could make your own degree, and I went in, believe it or not, as an art major, and then I was like, well, I need something applied, art and advertising, and then, well, I need something more academic, so art, advertising, and psychology, and then I'll never make money. So I spent a semester as a chemistry major. That was a mistake. And then I realized that I was not a chemistry major. And then I went back and thought, well, I really do want to do some sort of helping people occupation. And I was able to piece together lots of things that I had already done. And so the interdisciplinary counseling doesn't really exist as a degree, but mine was a combination of psychology Um, social work and then I I was able to take some graduate level counseling classes as an undergrad um, thinking that I would probably go to grad school eventually but not really sure what direction I would go in grad school.
0: And it sounds like you were able to customize your degree uh, to a certain extent. Very much. So tell us how and why you selected the University of Alabama for your bachelor's degree then.
1: Well, so decisions get made for you. Uh, I lived, I was born and raised in, in Birmingham, Alabama. But um, when I was in junior high, my dad took a job at the University of Alabama. And he was part-time faculty in broadcasting and part-time director of the Alabama Broadcasters Association, thus half price, thus cheap. And so I was there, I could live at home and go inexpensively there. So it was really a no-brainer. There, I, I never... I never, I, I did apply other places, but I didn't go anywhere else. Um, okay. Yeah.
0: And, and that was the primary factor. Were there any other colleges or universities that were even close to being considered after you applied? And if so, why?
1: Um, well, I, I, I did really well. Uh, well, I should say I dropped out of high school to go to college. Um, <laughs> so so I, I, I went to college after the 11th grade, I did really well on my ACT and, mm-hmm. So I got letters from everywhere, you know, please come here, please come here, please come here. Very flattering, kept a whole folder of all these places that really wanted me, but it didn't make sense because even with scholarships and everything, it was still very expensive. And that was right there. And also I was really involved with, I worked in a, in a, like a high school ministry group there. That was my friends. Those were the people I hung out with. And so to just go off on my own didn't make sense in my world at that time.
0: Mm-hmm. So my next question, you've kind of already answered it. You stayed at the University of Alabama mm-hmm. for your Master of Arts in Rehabilitation Counseling. Yes. Um, at that point, I kind of know why you probably stayed, because it still <laughs> made more sense to go ahead and stay. Right. Um, but why the change or why more of the focus on rehabilitation counseling now?
1: Uh, <laughs> this this is beginning to sound very utilitarian. I just, I'm just realizing that here, you know, <laughs> decades into it, but I knew I wanted to do counseling. Um, and there was a, a professor in the program who, yeah. I, like I said, as an undergrad, I took courses and in, in the counseling program. So I already knew some of the faculty members and I got recruited into that program. But there at that time, there was a a grant for student. You could go and, and just do counseling and and maybe have an assistantship, maybe not. But this was a a grant because they needed more rehabilitation counselors. And by by doing that particular program, you had to do an extra um, fifteen hour specialty in mental health um, mm-hmm. on top of a, it was a forty eight hour program. No, it's twelve hours. Forty eight hour program, but you did an extra twenty hours, so sixty hours. So it was extra coursework but they paid you a stipend and they paid for your school. So I can be bought. That's what I'm saying. I can be bought. But, <clears throat> but it's funny because that, while it was interesting, I just wanted the, the degree. I wanted to be able to hang out my shingle and be a counselor and <clears throat> eventually do private practice, which I did for a bit. Um, but with the rehabilitation part, that is what caused me to do the measurement part, the, the psych testing part of it. Which ended up now is so central in what I do and Mm -hmm. was probably the most useful part of that entire degree. But I did it because somebody paid me to add it on.
0: (laughs) You're (laughs) not alone. You're not alone. I know you want to feel special, but I'm telling you, a lot of people do go for (laughs) monetary reasons. And Mm -hmm. and that sounds like uh, that was one of the most important factors. With that being said, however, I, I do believe you wanted to become a counselor psychologist yes. And, yes. and going to private practice based on my research on you you rounded up uh, your your uh, graduate degree by staying oh surprise surprise at the at U of a for your yep. doctorate but this time you received your doctorate in educational psychology so you've made kind of three different right changes <laughs> but behind the scenes I suspect there was still that common theme and so well
1: and and you say stay I really didn't stay I came oh. back so, okay. so, cause of what I did, I finished my, my rehab degree. Um, we moved to Florida for uh, my husband's job mm-hmm. and um, we hated Florida. <laughs> Sorry for all the Floridians, <laughs> but we, we were not Florida people. We call it our four month wilderness experience. And we made a pact one day that the first person with a job out of Florida, we would take. And so, <laughs> so um let me say this. I had a master's degree in psychology. I was doing psych testing during the day using mm-hmm. my degree. Mm-hmm. I was a cocktail waitress at night. So, oh. <laughs> so another psychological application, but, um, but then but I, I, yeah, um,
0: I'm, I'm sorry for interrupting you, but yeah. I, I wanted to, uh, um, highlight a couple things. And I, sure. like one thing on your experience, um, again, I didn't, sorry, I
1: did not include cocktail. Waitress.
0: I, I was just going to point that out. <laughs> you, you knew, you read my mind. I was going, hmm, <laughs> I, I see this Florida uh, experience down here. Yep. I didn't see any cocktail experience. Right. Here, right. So.
1: Well, that was after hours. You know, so.
0: <laughs> that's, that's why. So I apologize that's for perfect. interrupting. Yeah, go ahead. No,
1: that's, that's perfectly fine. That's <laughs> perfectly fine. Um, but the job that I did get, and I was the first one that got the job. So I I ended up being um the assistant director of career planning and placement at the University of Alabama in Huntsville. So another another piece of the University of Alabama. I didn't mention also, I I did my rehab counseling internship at the University of Alabama in Birmingham. So I've really made the circuit. (laughs) But, But um so I was in Huntsville for about two and a half years, and then we moved back to Tuscaloosa for my husband's job. So it was his turn. And so I was back in that city. Um And I had when I was in Huntsville, I had dabbled with the idea of going to a doctoral program. I think i even I think I even applied to Vandy at that point because we were about hour and a half two hours south of there, and I thought that's doable, but I didn't really pursue it. but when we got back to to Tuscaloosa um let's see. we had had a baby in Huntsville, so I was a new mom um and so then I decided go ahead, get my license, hang out my shingle, and so I did do private practice for maybe a year and a half, two years, something like that. Um, I was terrible at it. Not that I was a terrible counselor, but I'm a terrible business person. And so, you know, I tell people I would see people for $5 or a chicken, you know, it's like, I really need to see somebody, but I don't have anyone. It's okay. Come on. I could not, we could never have survived if I had stayed in private practice. So I need to work for someone. Um, That's the reason I work for the state now. But um, so I did that, but really all along I was wanting to I thought go into clinical psych and so as I was doing this um, the private practice I, I was getting my materials together to apply to the clinical psychology PhD at Alabama which is completely across campus from the the ed psych I mean it's they're in totally different colleges and everything and so I I applied, but I was there. I mean, there there was nowhere else to apply. It's like, if you're going to go, you're going to go to Alabama or nowhere because it just wasn't, it was not practical in my life. And if I get in, I get in. If I don't, I don't. And so at that point, I think they had around 200 applicants. Um, I was interviewed. I was number 11. They took five. Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, But I have to, I have to put a, 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 a little bookmark here because I was interviewed by a woman who was a brand new faculty member in developmental psychology there. So I just have to put that there because she will come back. (laughs) Um, And so then I spent my days lying on the bed, looking at the ceiling, saying, well, now what? That's what I was going to do. And what will I be? And I have no direction. And here I am, you know, I don't want to do private practice. What can I do? Um, I didn't really want to be a rehab counselor. I suppose I could have, but I didn't really want to be. Um, and this, uh, now you're, we're going to go into weird land now, but I, in the middle of the night, I had a dream, I seriously, about two times in my life, I've had dreams that were like, Oh yeah, that, well, I had this dream that, and, and it was just like, it's, you should be an ed psych. And in my, in the middle of the night, I was like, yes, yes, <laughs> that's perfect. And it was like, it was like the answer, you know, and I woke up the next morning and I said. I don't want to do Ed Psych. Why well, would I want to do Ed Psych? But but anyway, I was like, all right. Well, I'll just go talk to because it it was in the same college where I got my um, counseling degree, but in a different department. So okay. I knew of some of the people. I knew a couple of the people, and I went and saw one of the professors that um, had taught one of my classes in my master's program. And um, it was in the middle of summer, and um, <laughs> it was so funny. I remember that conversation like it was yesterday, and he said. Well, you can start in two weeks with a full assistantship and I would like you to work with me. And it was like, wait, what? Right. <laughs> so, so, so um, I went back and talk to my husband. I didn't just take it right there. I was like, all right, here's what we got. And it was like, well, it's a degree. It's actually a job because you get paid and you're getting the degree and, oh, and by the way, we'll count your master's, you had to have two doctoral minors. We'll count your master's degree as one of your doctoral minors. So you'll have to have one doctoral minor and you can probably finish in three years. And it's like, huh. <laughs> you know, So, so, um so I did that and it was, it, it's it just amazing when you look back at, I wouldn't say I was kicking and screaming, but I went in very hesitantly and just, absolutely thrived it's so funny because because you think ed psych and yes we did a lot of testing and and um learning and how to teach things and all of that and planning this that and the other but um but I actually ended up doing a dissertation on basically um prenatal development <laughs> and, you know, so 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 it was it was they let me do pretty much whatever I wanted to and just cheer cheer we're my cheerleaders the whole way and it was it was an amazing experience so yeah it was perfect.
0: Andy thank you for that summary looking at your <laughs> Vita and everything else I, I I saw kind of the flow but I I didn't pick up on all these things that you, you right. un, unleashed on us today but a good summary for you and don't take this the wrong way you have been in a special place the whole time and and been treated very well uh-huh. even though you found out no This part isn't for me. And I quickly found that out. But then through that dream, you eventually went and and, uh, opened up that opportunity, went back to your husband and said, This is what we got. Uh, It's hard for us to pass up on this, similar to your undergrad. It's hard to pass up on that. And so interesting, interesting stories. Um,
1: I I do want to tell you the last little piece of that when I told you to remember who she was. Yeah. Because I said, In my head, when she interviewed me that day, and I don't even know if I voiced this, but I said, one day I want her job, you know, and, and it was so funny because like, I don't know, I know it was in 2011 when I, I mean, I I kind of knew where she was. She ended up becoming the chair of that psychology department later. We ended up going to a conference and I know that it was April of 2011 because it was the day the tornadoes went through. Tuscaloosa but she had escaped them we we ended up on a plane from Atlanta to Washington DC and we were sitting we ended up on a plane sitting next to each other wow and at that point I had just finished being acting chair of my department for a semester while my teaching child psych while my chair was on sabbatical and I thought I have her job <laughs> <Interesting. it's> like, <laughs> it's like, it, it just came full circle and and so I, it was a, like I said, a circuitous route, but ended up doing exactly what I really root level wanted to do and still love doing after three decades, you know, so.
0: I'm curious, did you, when you had that conversation with her, obviously it was, it was uh, fun to share that and, and then remind her because she may or may not have remembered you. And oh, I'm, sure she, I'm yeah. sure she didn't,
1: I'm sure she did. not
0: But being able to say that, and then maybe Part of you, if I were you, I, I'd want to say, hey, you know, back then, why did you put me down to 11? Why, right. What kind of prevented me from becoming <laughs> <Yeah>. number five?
1: <laughs> as new as she was, I bet she probably didn't even have much of a vote. <laughs> right, right. So can't blame her. I can't, I, I did my, my, one of my, uh, my other doctoral minor was in industrial and organizational psych. And so I did a lot of that, that work was in her department. And so I knew a lot of the other people that probably voted me down to that, but
0: <laughs> I, I, you mentioned that already, but I wanted to highlight a couple things here. So, you know, the, well, before I, before I go on, you, you already mentioned some wonderful stories. Do you have any other fond memories, uh, attending U of A and you have a vast, you know, time period to, to pull from well, but anything else come to mind?
1: Gosh, now, I, I, I think I took it for granted too much because I had always lived there. So I was in a college. It wasn't like the kid that comes from the little town out nowhere. And I'm at college now and it's big. I just took it for granted because I went to, unfortunately, fraternity parties from the time I was 13, probably. Mm-hmm. Don't, 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 don't quote me. You can record mm-hmm. it, but don't quote right. me. Um, <laughs> you know, so so um, I started having college fun way before I was in college. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I would say undergrad... I, I was I didn't really get all that involved, but when I got to grad school, I was in my happy place. It's like, I am focused on things I want to do and loved every bit of it. It's like, the, it was like, you're, you're in there getting to do the thing that you're most interested in and mm-hmm. do it all the time with people who also love it and people helping you do it. And so, so that's probably the, the actual, I'm, I'm a geek, but probably the learning part of it. <laughs>
0: So, and I mean, smelling
1: library books in the library. That's another I, one.
0: That's actually, <laughs> I share that with you, especially getting brand new books and then just paging through and letting yeah. the smell come through. Um, yep. One other thing that I wanted to ask is other than, you know, taking financial um, you know considering, I, I was gonna say financial aid. You didn't take financial aid, but um, <laughs> looking at the financial aspect of going and attending to graduate school, other than that, what was important to you when you were selecting a graduate psychology program?
1: Um, I didn't know enough to be selective at that point. It was right. It's really funny because I the programs that I was in didn't groom you for grad school. Mm-hmm. Um, now that I'm in a psychology department and we have students that we are preparing for grad school, there are so many things that I should have known and had that I didn't. Um, and I think some of that, but had I, had I done an undergrad in pure psych, I think I would have been groomed for that, which is very likely why I was, the fact that I got to 11th without that is Mm -hmm. pretty uncanny because we now, like I have a research lab and the students that want to go to grad school, they, they come and I mentor them and things like that. And we work on applications together and how to write statements and, and none I had, I didn't even know that existed you know? Right. And so, so I, I, yeah, I, I was unprepared. I was just smart. <laughs> so now in,
0: now in hindsight, now that you can look back at that and realize, oh my gosh, I got lucky along the way. And I, you know, I was lucky to get up to number 11.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What advice would you offer those who are seeking a graduate degree in psychology?
1: I, I would tell students, um, even if you're not sure you ever want to do that, go ahead. Like, at least by late sophomore early junior year at least pretend you're going to do that and go ahead and start doing the things you know Mm -hmm. get involved in um if you can work with somebody in a research lab or get in psych get in psych club things like that where where you're learning the culture because i think that's so important um you don't have to be able to do all the stuff but 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 even like like in a research lab there's something that all kinds of people with all kinds of interests can do. Like I have some people that are very detail oriented. They want to code data and sit there and do that kind of things. Other people want to do interviews. Other people want to, you know, go present something, other people, whatever, but, but just to, to, and and to also be with other people that have that as a goal. And you kind of spur each other on when it's like, I don't want to do anything extra, but we've got to, let's do it. You know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So so I think that that learning the culture is huge.
0: Yes. And the other thing that I'd add is even if you don't want to present any papers at conferences, right. still attend and yep. see the culture yes. and expand your, your contacts. Cause that may come back and, and help you later on as well.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm so glad conferences are back. I'm leaving for one on Sunday. It's the nice. first in-person conference in over two years. So isn't
0: that, <laughs> isn't that unreal how how slow it went, but how fast when yes. we look back at it. Yes. Yes. Unreal. <laughs> I, I, I know afterwards, you know, uh, after you received your PhD, mm-hmm. uh, you landed a job at West Georgia College as an assistant right. professor of educational and developmental psychology. So mm-hmm. how did you find that opportunity? And why did you select West Georgia College?
1: Well, I applied for, I'm going to say about 70 jobs when I finished. One of the things, when I was an undergrad, I think it was when I was undergrad, somebody said, yeah, job market for professors is terrible. Don't even think about it. And to me, just knowing myself, it was like, yeah, hide and watch. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, right. that was my challenge. Um, and so all along, uh, like I said, my dad taught there too. So it's kind of, I had seen that. and. I think that's what I always aspired to. I just didn't really voice it. But um, so when I finished, I guess it was not, it was not abysmal, but it wasn't great. And so I applied a lot of places. I ended up getting two interviews, two interviews. One was at a small women's college and they paid almost, well, it was more than my assistantship, but not a whole lot more. And West Georgia paid enough to actually begin to live on. And mm-hmm. so that was the choice. It was like, well, you know, it was. And I applied all over. I applied in Australia. I applied in New Zealand. I applied. OK, I applied everywhere except Florida. Guess that one. Okay. Um, and California. It's like, OK, okay I, I'll live anywhere else. <laughs> oh, and Texas, because I had, I had already lived there and I didn't want to go back really. But um, so um, so I went there. It was not really what I thought I wanted but bird in the hand, you know, um, and it was teaching at that time. I had really, really focused on the developmental, um, developmental psych. And so I taught a lot of lifespan courses and things like that. And big classes. It was, it was, they had, they did, they, they were masters granting at the time, but it was much more like a community college than, um, than a research college. So. The
0: other uh, follow-up question I have for that, and I've only asked a few of my guests on podcasts so far, is, and I've gone through interviews as well, but a lot of people think that it's just an interview, you meet with one person. Many times when you go to these uh, interviews, you're meeting with a board or a, a panel, and not only the panel within your department, they may introduce you to other people within the department or other areas within the school or college, Tell me what you remember about your uh, interview process at West Georgia.
1: Okay. Well, I can tell you, remembering it is probably a little murkier right now. I am coaching through. In fact, he has texted me like several times and called since we've been on this podcast, (laughs) a student who graduated last year, who is in the job market. And uh, right now he's. He's holding an offer in one hand. He's about to interview at another. He's got like ten interviews. It's crazy. It's like, mm-hmm. uh, so so. I am I'm living it vicariously right now. <laughs> but and also know how we do here. But I I believe there and I know when I came here. It's like a two day process where you mm-hmm. meet with, you meet with students. You meet with faculty. You meet with the committee. You meet with the, you know maybe the president or the provost or the dean or whoever you might meet with HR. Or you get driven around town by a real estate agent, you know, all of the things, but it's like at least a day and a half, sometimes two full days of, of you get to know us. We get to know you. Um, COVID has changed that a lot, but, but they're getting uh, the pre-screening type in. I think there are more pre-screening interviews now, but, um, but still once, once you get to the, and those are often zoom, but once you get to the actual interview, you want to see each other in the flesh, you know.
0: <laughs> sure, sure. Well, thanks for sharing that. I, I always want our audience to understand and, and anticipate uh, what may happen during that interview process. Right. And you actually stayed at West Georgia College for four years mm-hmm. b- before you began your illustrious career at. E- <laughs> I love the way you said <laughs> Because, and I say that because you've been there since 1995, and you started yeah. there as assistant professor in yep. the human development and learning in 1995. So how did you move from West Georgia to ETSU?
1: Well, one, I had a, an amazing chair at West Georgia who knew that I was kind of out of my element. I really loved research and it was, I did, I actually applied for an NIH grant while I was there and they said, Oh, we've never done this. We'll give it a shot. (laughs) so, (laughs) So I was like, yeah, that didn't happen. But, um, but he knew that I wanted research. I knew that I wanted that one day. And so from the the time he got there, he um he sort of coached me and groomed me. And and he said, he said, my best advice, because he had worked other places, um, he said, go ahead and do your work as if you are already at the place you want to be. And so okay. like I didn't have to publish much there. They counted newsletter articles as publications, you know? So, but he said, if you want to be somewhere else, just keep working as if you're there, which I did. And, and so, and then it was so funny because even when I, when I applied here, I applied a few places, but it was like, I've got a job. If I'm going to go somewhere, I want to go somewhere. I really want to go love Tennessee used to, used to vacation here. My husband and I would vacation here. And so, so when jobs came up here, other places in Georgia might've done North Carolina. I don't know, but very geographic, you know, I was like, I, this is close enough to family, but far enough from family, you know, whatever. Um, But, but even when I got the interview here, and I'm trying to think, I probably, I may have interviewed some other places too. I just, I really can't remember. But, um, but even when I got the job offer, oh, and I didn't mention, I did do generally in, in psychology, I don't know in other fields, but you either do a job talk, like a research talk, or you do a teaching sample. And I actually taught a class when I came to interview. I taught an entire class one day, and the people, the committee, just sat in the back and watched me teach the class. So, um, <clears throat> so you, you have to prove that you can do what you're doing. But um, I got the I got the job offer, and he actually coached me on negotiating higher salaries. Oh, nice. so <laughs> he, he said it never hurts to ask. They can say no. They're right. not going to not hire you because you asked, but the rest of your life depends on your starting salary because it's all percentages. Mm-hmm. And so I asked for a thousand. They gave me 500. And, you know, so so I owe 500 plus whatever percentages to my former boss. <laughs>
0: there you <laughs> so. go. Nice. Nice. <laughs> um I know that you, well, since you've been at uh, East Tennessee State University, you made your way up as associate professor, then Mm -hmm. professor. You also changed from human development and learning to psychology. And in the meantime, if you weren't busy enough, you also served as the coordinator for the human development and learning program for a year. Right. Uh, I'm going to put you on the spot. Tell me a little bit more about that experience for audience members as well.
1: Uh, well, I came in. Um, I, I came from a counseling and ed psych department to a human development learning program, but it contained the um, counseling, ed psych, and um, foundations courses in the College of Education. So, so I left teaching, research, and measurement and child development to go there and do research, measurement, and child development, and then I came to psych to do research, measurement. So it's, it's kind of the same content. Um, but, um, yeah, as far as heading that up, it was more it was a small program, so it wasn 't like I was this big, fancy leader. It was kind of more like it was my turn, and I was very detail oriented and so it included things like hiring adjuncts for to teach classes and making sure the schedule was right, and dividing up the work among us and when we had to do curriculum changes, we you know making sure this got done and things like that but um, so it was a little prestige. It was no extra money. I don't think I got a course release or anything like that, but, but it looks good. It looks good on a Vita. Cause you're still reading it.
0: <laughs> I, I am. I'm looking at it and you can tell, I told you before we started recording, I have multiple screens. And so I'm <laughs> actually looking at everything that you've done in the meantime. And that brings us to, you also are involved with um, the Ballad Health Strong Brain Institute at ETSU and, yes. and Tell us a little bit more about that. You you referred to it earlier when we were discussing. Hey, it's a it's an opportunity for students to come in, volunteer, mm-hmm. learn more about the lab process, and then mm-hmm. uh, do what they'd like. So well, and that is not even my that.
1: lab. I, my oh. my lab. Yes. <laughs> oh,
0: I learned something.
1: <laughs> my lab is the health addiction uh, heart lab. Health addiction, religiosity, and. Trauma. Yes, that's what those have to spell it in order. Um, okay. because those are all the things that I study. Um I'm I'm basically working on curing addiction. So, you know, when it happens, you can say, gosh, she was on my podcast before that happened. Um, but um, yeah, but I'll tell you about the strong brain institute too. Well, first I should probably tell you how I got to the department of psychology. Um, okay. because that was um that was as I became full professor. And I don't know if you know you, you come in as assistant, then you you're you're promoted to associate. And then the final promotion is to full professor. And so once you get there, that's it on, you know, until you retire or something, become emeritus maybe, but, but that's the last like hurdle that people vote on you for. And so I, the, a new chair came to the psych department also interested in, in child development and was Scoping out the land, came over, found what I was doing, liked what I was doing, tried to recruit me, and I said, "We will not have this conversation right now because I'm up for full professor." People could still vote against me. It's like we're keeping everybody happy and we're not going to talk about it. But I, but we did work in a lab. We shared a lab at that point, and yeah. so it was just like collaboratively across colleges. Um, and the moment that was finalized, I said, "Okay, now let's have that conversation."
0: <laughs> there so, you go.
1: <laughs> and so. And and the beauty of that is this department is much more research focused, but also teaching load is a thing. And I was teaching pretty much a three for me, three classes and then four classes and education. I teach two, two over here. And the the amount of research you can get done in that extra time is priceless. And so um, so that that is why I came over here originally. And then the, the Strong Brain Institute, it's only two years old. Um, I began gosh, in 2015, I have a friend, um, a good friend, another circuitous story, but, um, she was running a grant for our city police department and it was a crime reduction grant. And so I had been volunteering on the side. We also were church planters. So uh, so several people had planted a church. And she had this new, this grant she was running and needed some folks to basically mentor people. And so she said, Ooh, I got this friend with a new church. She'll want to do this. And so we got involved doing that. And so anyway, I just visited that program this morning that she started in 2013 and now they have like 50 people at a time going through the program. Um, But during her time in that she went to some conferences and learned about adverse childhood experiences and trauma informed care. And I don't know if you've had anybody talk about those on here before, but basically looking at how early adversity causes all these later health problems and so forth. And I am very much interested in addiction as as, as one of those health problems and all the things that go with it. And so she and I just started training all over. Um yeah, you should check Beckyhaas.com, H-A-A-S. Um, look that up sometime and you'll know that she's a little housewife that thought she was done and now she's changing the world. And I mean the whole world. So um, but she came back with this information, she said, Andy, I found the cure for cancer. And I was like, okay, let's talk. And so she told me about it. And I being her skeptical, logical friend said, let me go read some research. I'll get back to you. <laughs> you know. And so, so I started looking at um, the CDC page at that time. It was a page. Now it's like a whole probably wing, but um, looking at that, that, and it's like, oh my gosh, this is something that we really need to begin to address. So she and I started just offering free trainings, free trainings, free trainings, and, and, Um, she ended up writing a book. We ended up getting several grants, um, to, to train people. And to, um, one was with the boys and girls club. One was to write a toolkit for communities to use this information. And so many people at ETSU where I am now sort of, they keep calling it, we drunk the Kool-Aid and it sounds so bad. So it's like, let's come up with another term for that, but, (laughs) but but they are so on board that we started meeting as sort of this group of folks that said, we need to systematize this somehow. And I kept saying, we need a research center. We need a research center. And my boss will tell me, it's like, yep, Andy hounded that one to death. We need a research center. And so um, we just said, well, let's ask for it. And so we asked the, the president and our board of trustees, we said, we have this idea, we want to do this. What can you do? And, we, and they said, we like this idea, make us a proposal and we'll consider it. We, gave, we did a proposal, gave it to them. Crickets. Nothing. 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 And then, in March of 2020, you remember March of 2020, right? Yeah. Sure. Um, <laughs> we were sitting around the table, and it's like, okay, now the entire world is currently experiencing trauma. I think the time is right, and we had no idea this was happening. But the president contacted um, the chair of the psych department, who is also the director, the uh, the inaugural director of the institute. And said, oh, hey, I've been working with Ballad Health, which is our large. Let's see here. Here's my here's my Alabama Cup. Roll Tide. Here's my Ballad Cup (laughs) working with Ballad, which is a large health system here and said, hey, I talked to them and they're going to give you a million dollars over five years to start this center. And it's like, OK, thanks. (laughs) So, (laughs) so, So that started officially. I'm not sure when the check came, but we started doing business in June of of 2020. And, um, and so it has just taken off like gangbusters because they're like 17 or 18, very active, motivated researchers and trainers and so forth that are working on this. And so we have a, a couple of state grants now and things like that. And, and we, we developed a structure this year because we needed to compartmentalize. And so, um, that's when I became research associate or associate director of research design and implementation. I mean, he, he likes to make long names and then we have an associate director of extramural funding and something. I can't remember what the rest of hers is. So we do most of the research stuff. And then there's a training associate director training who's kind of oversees that. And then we all have grad students. And so, so it's really, really taken off, which is great. Um, um, yeah, so, so that, you- when yeah, you look yeah. back and you say, wow, how did this happen? You know, it just, it was a good idea. It was a good idea all along. And we just kept saying, Hey, we're first and we're doing it best. <laughs> and so people believed us. So
0: <laughs> Here's, here's the website. Uh, and I actually went to uh, about us and contact us and the experts and here's the yeah. experts uh, page. And you referred yeah. to kind of all these people that are uh, involved and, and motivated to make sure that this, uh, um, lab is actually um, uh, successful. And um, I I applaud you because you have a wide variety of people on here and even people from pharmaceutical sciences, psychiatry, uh, as you mentioned, different associate directors of different trainings, uh, extramural funding, uh, a good variety. And of course, here Mm -hmm. you are uh, as the SBI associate director of research design and implementation. And while I'm sharing the screen, I know that you've been uh, a professor of psychology since 2005 at ETSU, and here are a couple of your websites that uh, highlight what you do there, professor and assistant chair. Tell us what you like most about your job.
1: Um, The same thing I have said probably since I entered facultyhood, and that is the flexibility. Yeah, I think some people might think flexibility, oh, you can go to the beach, or you can drink mint juleps, or whatever. And mine is, I want to do so many things, but I. It's so helpful to me when they overlap, and so I th- I think of my myself as a Venn diagram, <laughs> because I have the SBI, I have my job as a professor, I have the nonprofit that we haven't even talked about yet, but yet they all what I'm doing within them overlaps so nicely. And I mean, there's still the grunt stuff that you have to do. And I do still teach classes. I actually teach classes Mm -hmm. and love my students. Um, But but I can usually I can orchestrate it so that it overlaps enough that I don't lose my mind.
0: (laughs) So talk for a moment, because I was going to bring this up before and you actually prompted and, and reminded me of asking this question. Uh, not a lot of people understand that there are research level one, two, and three institutions. Mm-hmm. And depending on what kind of research institution you are, your course load changes uh, right. based on that expectation. So, kind of give us your best overview of what to expect for each of those levels. Um, and you can't speak for, I understand, other universities and everything right. else, but in general, what's kind of a nice overview of, of talking about the different research institutions? Right.
1: And I don't, I, don't, I, I... I'm not sure how much, I mean, yes, you can use those as sort of markers, but I think if somebody were say going to one or interviewing at one, asking questions that get at expectations, course loads for sure, course loads Mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, Because if it's somewhere, the, the fellow that I was talking about that's interviewing for jobs, he, well, I'll say one of my recent graduates is teaching at a place where she does a six, seven load. Oh, wow. I don't even know how one survives. She obviously does not do research. He's looking, he's right now weighing out a five, five and a four, four, you know, but he doesn't, he doesn't really want to do research so much. He wants to do more teaching, which is fine. And if you want to Mm -hmm. teach four or five courses a semester is reasonable that that's, that's a full-time job. You get to where you're good at it, you know, and, and you can do that, but if you want to do research, it's very hard to do that. And if, so if you went in somewhere and they wanted you to teach a lot and do good research you're going to be it is not a 40-hour job right. anymore it's it's many many more hours than that but you look at one of the things that i was i was talking to somebody the other day We ha- I'm, I'm actually teaching a practicing course that has some of our students who are in the job market now who are are, are considering where they're going to apply and have already been applying some and i said you need to think about um what you want, you know, what, what life work balance kind of thing. Because when I came, like when I came from West Georgia there, if you look at research or prestige or whatever, I was a big fish in a very little pond, you know, it's like people could be real impressed with me doing stuff that wasn't that impressive. And when I, and then I thought when, when I was applying for jobs, my husband, and I had a really good talk about this somewhere around the time I promised him I wouldn't get any more degrees. Um, (laughs) and our 40th anniversary is this summer. So it is working out. Um, but, um, so it was, do I want to be in a, you know, like a, a little fish in a big pond where I'm running to keep up all the time and that is what I have to do. And there's always this threat of not good enough, or would I rather be a medium fish in a medium pond? Mm -hmm. And it's like, that is what I want. And that is where I am. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like, I do. There are people in our department that just run circles around me with publications and things like that. There are people that publish half what I do, Mm -hmm. you know, and there are folks that would really rather just teach and only do some, oh, hey, a little research on the side. There's some people that are, you know, like I now have a burning desire to answer a research question. That's what keeps me going because I could really slack for the rest of my career and no one would care. You know, Mm -hmm. every year I write down what I did and they said, yep, that's what you did. But I mean, it's not like they're going to fire me, you know, (laughs) so, so, but I'm so passionate about what I do. That's why I keep doing it. Um, But I don't have to, but, but the medium medium was a really good fit for me, but for somebody else, it might be, oh no, I want to be the best of the best in the best place. And I'm going to do whatever I can. And that's what I'm throwing all my energy. And that's great. That's great. Mm -hmm. We need those folks you know? So
0: So is there anything, you know, in retrospect, is there anything that you wish you had known about psychology ahead of time before choosing this career path?
1: Hmm. I think the, I think the problem is I thought I knew everything. (laughs) Doesn't everybody?
0: Doesn't everybody? So I continue (laughs)
1: learning the things that I did. You you know, you get old enough to realize how dumb you were, and you've done that so many times. You think, "Wow, I wonder what I'm dumb about right now." (laughs) so (laughs) it it breeds humility. I'll say that.
0: (laughs) Definitely, definitely. Um, You mentioned I was was
1: gonna I was gonna cure schizophrenia. That was my first thing I was gonna do. You know, and so I decided to tackle addiction because it's easier.
0: You, well, you, a lot of people are, are facing uh, that problem of trying to cure addiction as well. Now that yep. we're looking at the uh, neuroscience of it, uh, mm-hmm. neuroscience I have found in recent years is, is kind of making its way into all different areas, uh, within psychology fields, as well as outside of yes, psychology
1: yes. fields. And, and well. that is some of where I am as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but that might be a much longer conversation someday, but <laughs>
0: So let me transition over. You sure. mentioned nonprofit, and so mm-hmm. you're also involved with Uplift Appala- Appalachia.
1: Very uh, good, very there good.
0: There you go. Uh, tell <laughs> us more about uh, uh, this organization, uh, its mission, and how you got involved. And while you're doing that, I'll share my uh, screen with everybody.
1: Okay. Um. Well, several years ago, like I said, I was working with this program that my friend had started, and it was a it, it's a prison diversion program for high risk, high need felony offenders with addictions. And so that was, I got to know people in the program and really see the struggle that they had with just trying to stay out of jail, not use drugs, you know, uh, the whole thing. And, um, and so it really was from the wanting to help side, um, that, that I got, I don't know, passionate about this population. Mm-hmm. I'll throw in that my, I have, my sister was addicted to drugs and she passed away at 39 after a long life of, of substance abuse. Um, but I was very bad at it then. I didn't know, I, 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 was, I was who I am trying to change now, I guess. Um, <laughs> but, so I wasn't good at it, But um, but I guess it was definitely a learning process and gives me some insight that I wouldn't otherwise have. Um, but, but I mentioned before I was also a church planner and it was 2012 when we planted the church that we, we started and, um, and I'd been involved in church for decades. Obviously I was in campus ministry, all that stuff, but, um, but I thought, well, that's who needs to be working on this. Yeah. This just makes sense. And, um, prayed about it and, you know, just went on about my very way, whatever, and then I was invited to a, this really does have a point. I was invited to a focus group in the summer. I think it was 2016. Um, and we have a a very high neonatal abstinence syndrome rate here, like 10% in some counties of, of the births are are substance, like NAS, not just substance exposed, but NAS. Um, and So some folks from Duke university came over and wanted to help this little Appalachian community. See how I say that Mm -hmm. Appalachian community with this terrible health problem that they have. And so they brought people in, Becky Haas, the one that brought trauma from care to me was there. I was there. Um, and there were probably three or four other people, just, just random people. And I still, to this day, do not, not, do not know why that particular set of people were in that room that day, but we had a conversation and I had, when I first decided to to add the study of religious variables to my research, I had gone to a a training event. It was a five day training that they do every summer at Duke University, and so some of the people that were involved in that came for this focus group. And so it was like, hey, how, how have you been? Haven't seen you in a few years, whatever. And then nothing, you know. And so. It's like well that was interesting and i just went on doing my job and then the next spring so spring of 17 becky and i becky becky and i spent a lot of time together. becky and i were invited to lunch by this fellow i did, i knew he had been in that meeting like one of the leaders of the meeting but i didn't know who he was or anything like that so he asked us to lunch and um don't know why us but he said so i'm thinking we need to try to, try to mobilize the church to address addiction and i said Yes, Lord. <laughs> you know, no. I was like, okay. Um, and he had like, uh, he said, we want to have a conference, and we would like you to help us plan it. And so he already had a prospectus, like with color photos and everything. And in that prospectus were two of my book crushes. Like, you read a book, and it, this change changes your life forever. You mm-hmm. know. And so two of the people with two of those books were in that prospectus and they were coming here and I am asked to be a part of this. And it's like, well, I don't know who you are, but I know who they are. So I'm in. (laughs) (laughs) And so so that started. So we did like for a year, we worked on planning this conference um, and it was to bring together um, clinicians and clergy and various church members and so forth and so I ended up doing so much of the planning of that, um, all the way down to getting the CEUs. I mean, just, it was, it was a monumental undertaking, but a lot of people working on it. And so about 450 people came, had people from all over. It was fantastic. And we did it in uh, May of 18. And then, you know, we still had our steering committee and it was like, now what, you know, we've done this, we've had a conference. Okay. Mm-hmm now what? And that summer, a grant came out, um, a HERSA grant came out that um, the Health Resources Services Administration, a federal grant um, to help rural areas. And one of the people on the steering committee said, we ought to go for that grant. And I said, that's a great idea, but it's due in three weeks. I don't think we could do it. And they said, I think we can do it. I said, I really don't think we can do it. I said, what if we write the pieces? If it comes together, great. If it doesn't, then will have that for a future grant and they said great and and one of them was this guy that sucked i mean uh, brought me into the whole process and says okay and so he and i were going to work on it together and he is not a grant writer and so so i read i read some of it. it's like okay this is not going to work i said tell you what i'll be writing some things he said great i'm going to alaska i'll be back the day it's due <laughs> like, okay see right. ya Anyway, we got the grant. <laughs> so wow. we got the grant, um, and so we used that to start a nonprofit called the 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 event we had had was the Holy Friendship Summit. We started a nonprofit called the Holy Friendship Collaborative, um, which was a consortium of folks that were interested in mobilizing the church to address addiction. And so we had the grant for a year. Oh, by the way, the guy that was the that was the um, the one that sucked me into all this and went to Alaska is the guy that wrote the merger that made ballot health. So he was the, he was the chairman of the board of one of the hospital systems that merged to make ballot health. So, so all of this dovetails, it's all part of the same web, but um, so anyway, so we, we had that organization and we were trying to work, we were partnering with Duke to try to do some, to take a model that they had used to train churches and Transplant it to Appalachia, and the thing that we learned is that that does not work. (laughs) So it's like, yeah, no, it's just a different culture, whatever. Um, But we had some. It was a planning grant, and a big piece of that was was doing strategic planning and all of this stuff. And we had a very large board with very different ideas of what this should look like, and it just. And I was the grant director. I was like, we have to do this thing. We have deliverables. We have a federal contract. We have to do it, and it just kept grinding to a halt, grinding to a halt, grinding to a halt. And I was mm-hmm. such a nag because it's like we have to turn something in. And in the meantime, we had really, some, mainly, some people from our church had started Uplift Appalachia to do. We were being mobilized, and it's like mm-hmm. we wanted. To, we started this this nonprofit to do some of the things we thought we were mobilized to do, which were particularly doing transportation and housing. And, um, and then, you know, so HFC was going to do kind of this training and equipping, and we were going to do the, the applied programs, but, um, but HFC ground to such a halt, they decided, let's just dissolve and give it all to Uplift. And so Mm -hmm. they dissolved and gave us the little bit of money, including this podcasting equipment, which was Mm -hmm. not with that money, um, (laughs) but, but, um, and the mission of equipping churches. So now a lot of what we do is, um, you know, I, I used to say a lot of what we do is training. A lot of what we do is consulting with churches or with faith-based organizations or with organizations trying to get grants that want to, to collaborate with the faith community or interpreting science to the church or the church to science um, and, and things like that. So that involves some training. It involves some material development. Um, it involves telling this a whole lot Mm -hmm. (laughs) because, Mm -hmm. because it's almost like uh, we're doing some publishing. We've, we've published some things on like our needs assessment of kind of how ready is the church. And then it's like, okay, we're having trouble with communication. We just published an article on health communication in churches. Um, you know, just, um, trying to figure out what is needed to get folks to the next step to be the support in the community. Cause there are a lot of, a lot of, a lot of programs are like, we need, you know, we need certified peer recovery specialists. We've got those. And it's like, we'll be there. Like if there's an overdose, we'll meet you in the hospital and then we'll shepherd you into the community to who there's no, there's, there's no arms to receive you. And so we're trying to make the arms to receive people.
0: Okay. <laughs> so. As you were talking, I brought up the uh, website again for Mm -hmm. Uplift and uh, the vision Uplift Appalachia envisions Mm -hmm. a day when all people affected by addiction are flourishing. And then the mission Uplift Appalachia provides education, training, consulting, and connecting to churches and organizations, motivating and equipping them to love and serve those living with addictions and mental health challenges on their journey to flourishing. And the reason I'm sharing this with you is you mentioned publications. So you have this area for publications as well. And then the team, of course, uh, the board, uh, you have a list of all the members here. And lo and behold, there's there's (laughs) Becky again. And while you were talking, I was able to bring up Becky Haas author, Mm -hmm. speaker, and trainer. And here she is trying to change the world with all of her uh, passions. And so if you wanted to know more about her, I'll include this link as well uh, on the podcast site. So I wanted to share that all with you. And to summarize it, it kind of seems like to me, you and the board uh, have taken on this role and this passion to help uh, almost become and act like interpreters, or, or li- I, I'm not sure if, if I'd call them a liaison between. Lia- faith- I use
1: the term liaison all the time. Okay. Yes. All right.
0: Between faith, health, and science yep. to help the church address the opio- opioid uh, epidemic. And I read some articles uh, that were saying in the last year, even less than that, I think some of the research was from March to March in a year or April to April in a year, over 100,000 um, uh, cases of, uh, overdose and, and
1: overdose I, I, death. That's just the deaths. That's not the overdoses. That's yeah, just the death. You yeah.
0: Yep. You're right. I'm pulling it yep. up right now. Yeah. Um, and so it, I, I applaud you for doing that because, um, many people, uh, are affected by, uh, addiction and even more so nowadays by opioid. Uh, yes. I, I read somewhere it's the, it's the number one, uh, um, drug that's being used now and associated with deaths uh, more so than other ones. Is that true?
1: It is. It, it, well, and I would say opioids and meth, but mm-hmm. the problem is meth is generally laced with fentanyl now, which is an opioid. And so, mm-hmm. so even if you think you're not doing it, you're doing it. And mm-hmm. yeah, so that's why such a, a steep incline in deaths. And, and it really brings it home when you tell people it's more than deaths by motor vehicle accidents. It used to be, oh, well, it's always traffic accidents, always traffic. No, it's more than that. And that's when it really sinks in, I think. And it went up since the beginning of COVID over 30%. So it was like we were kind of trending level. There was one tiny dip down, and then it just exploded with COVID.
0: So what is the most challenging, now that you've been involved with Uplift for a while, what is the most uh, challenging part of your role um, now and moving forward?
1: Funding, absolutely funding. And, and that- the reason, and I think any organization would say that to an extent, but the problem is we're sort of in this no man's land of we're too religious for most funders but we're too scientific for most churches. I guess. Mm-hmm. So, so, um, so it, that has been a challenge, you know, that first grant that we got before we even applied, I talked to them and I said, look, we're talking about actual Christian Bible based stuff. We may have Bible studies in Sunday school. And they said, bring it on. That's fine. And we did, and we got the grant, but then, and then the, the, a year after we got that grant, they have a, a meeting of all the grantees in um, Bethesda, Maryland up near DC. And so they do presentations of what everybody's done and things like that. And they asked us to be on the faith panel. Mm-hmm. And, um, so shortly before that, I said, I just asked him, I said, well, so who else is on there? So I'll kind of know, you know, I don't want to overlap too much or whatever. And how much time? And they said, well, it's just you. <laughs> I was like So it was, <laughs> it was me and the faith-based person from SAMHSA, and we were the only one, you know, and I said, okay, well, there you go, so I got to speak for the entire faith community at the HRSA conference, <laughs> right. but, but that's how rare it is, you know, and it's just, I still don't know, act of God, I guess, that, that that went through and got funded, and they loved it, they loved it, and it's like, okay, guys, you love this, let's do more of this, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so,
0: I'm going to share my screen one last time here. And yeah. you were on a, a few recent podcasts, and, and mm-hmm. a couple of them uh, appeared on here. Let it uh, load up. This is an older one. This is on trauma informed care in 2016. But then these other two are uh, recent, January 21st, 2022, and uh, it's you op- opioid addiction and the crisis of hopelessness. I remember reading through this and mm-hmm. and seeing some of the comments on here and. Unless you're aware of the crisis and what's happening, you you just kind of take it for granted. Oh, it's it's an addiction, and you know addictions have been around for ages. And, right. You know we can't really make any any changes there. And then here is the one that you referred to earlier in the podcast: uh, opioid deaths over a hundred thousand per year. And I think this is the one where yeah, April to April of uh, mm-hmm. twenty to twenty one, and good information on here uh, about what's happening, and then other links. Um, to actually uh, listen to the podcast as well so kind of tell me in your own words you know where do you go from here I mean we've we've covered your academic professional journey your own um, heart lab the brain strong brain uh, institute and then um, going and talking about uplift what are your plans for the future
1: (laughs) plans for the future gosh um A lot is to keep doing what I'm doing because I really, really love it. I occasionally remind myself that I'm getting pretty old and one day I guess you die or do something different, but I can't can't really envision that. You know, my husband retired last year and I can't because one, you can't see it, but I have a really sweet office that I love (laughs) and it's all mine. And I have all kinds of access to stuff and just, I, I, I can't imagine doing what I do somewhere else. So I I really like being here. Um, but, um, I don't know. I, I hope it catches on. I mean, I've, I've gotten to do so many just amazing, amazing things. Like a couple of days ago, um, there I, I, we have a cheer for some reason, this woman that works with the department of health and human services. I don't know if you're familiar with HHS. They have what's called the the partnership center, which is the, the, the branch of HHS that deals with, that works with faith communities of all kinds, not just Christianity, but all kinds. And they have a toolkit and she sent it to me to edit, oh. you know, and it's like, how, how, but she just loves what we do. And so so then she asked me some questions. I said, I'm going to say some controversial stuff. And she said, she, she, she didn't believe me, but then she found that it was um, just challenging some, some current, very firmly held ideas. And she said, teach me. And she was willing to learn. It's like, teach me about that. Why do you think that? And so I just wrote her a book yesterday and here, here, here's, here it is. And, and she, said, she said, well, if you have time, I'd love to talk on the phone. I said, I always have time for you because I feel like when I talk to you, I'm talking to the federal government and you're the mm-hmm. only one who listens. Right. But the fact that there is somebody that, you know, I get so mad about things at times. I, I don't look like somebody, I, I really, it's hard to make me mad, but I get really frustrated, particularly with things that exploit people who are stuck. And so many people in addiction and incarceration and so forth, they're stuck. And so many people are making money off of that. And it makes me very angry. And so I keep telling people I'm either going to be an activist or a lobbyist, and I'm not sure which, and it just depends on the day. I was talking to a sheriff in a nearby county yesterday, and he said, you might need to go for activists. And here's the sheriff telling me I might need to go for activist. <laughs> so, so, so but that, it's fun because it's been research, and it's very, like, when you're doing research, it's, like, very methodical and precise and all this stuff. But the reason you do the research is so somebody can use it someday. And one of the things sure. that's special about our department, when we, when we started our experimental psych program, I'm in mean, the experimental, I'm not in the clinical. Um, when we started our experimental PhD, um, we called it translational experimental because what we want, we want to, to be that kind of bit somewhere in the bench to bedside. We don't want it just sitting there on the table, but somehow what's this good for? And I feel like now I'm able to use all that stuff. And so that's what's so gratifying. I'd still do research, but, but I don't do anything just because it's research. I do the research that I need to do to do what I do.
0: So <laughs> two questions that I have to follow up on. You okay. mentioned, um, I mentioned earlier, you were assistant chair. So I want to speak to that role for mm-hmm. a second, and then give you an opportunity to talk about how ETSU is different uh, than other schools when it comes to the Department of Psychology. Okay. So give you a, a couple minutes to talk about that. And then uh, we'll get into some fun questions at the end. Okay. So one thing that you you mentioned is, you, you've been doing a lot, and, and as I mentioned, you you have moved within the academic field uh, at ETSU, going from assistant associate to full-fledged professor, uh, and then you, you did some work on the side and then kind of came back and now you're assistant chair. So tell us how... Um, you found that opportunity or were you approached or were you seeking that opportunity? A lot of our guests just talk about, yeah, I I served as chair, vice chair. Uh, and, and what is the importance of having that experience in your academic vita.
1: Um, well, it, it, it came to me because when, when the chair, like I mentioned the chair came in 2002 before I was in this department. And so there were no assistant chairs. Um, but when he came to the department, we only had maybe 250 majors, something like that. Now we have over 600 majors. And so the department really grew, but with that, because there is so much to do as a chair, gradually people would take on responsibility. So the, the somebody else does like the scheduling classes and we call, we call her the, the, um, associate chair or vice chair, depending on where you look of logistics. And so like if, (laughs) if a party needs planning or classes need to be scheduled or whatever, she takes care of that. Um, my chair is so good because he doesn't ask you to do things without compensating you somehow. It might be money. It might be release time. It might be getting out of something you don't want to do, whatever and he's great that way. And so, um, so he created the vice chair positions so that he could pay us a little bit extra to do things other people are not doing. Uh, we have somebody that does all of our, like collecting that data that you have to have for accreditation and for this, that reporting and all that stuff. That's another person. I do curriculum and he's so funny because he knows me well. And he said, <laughs> he said, I really, cause I understand, I, I kind of, we used to do advising in-house, like the faculty would do the advising. Now we have separate advisors who do it, which is a much better model because we were bad at it. But I was over our advising. Like he, he got me to do that because one, I was good at it and I really mm-hmm. understood curriculum. I used to do that for my friends in college. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. I know how to make a schedule. And um, so he knew that I kind of liked that. But he said, he said, I want to pitch this to you because one, I know you want to do something where you don't have to be in meetings for it, that you can just do on your own. And I said, heck yeah. (laughs) And he said, and I know you know the systems. Will you do curriculum? So whenever we have curriculum changes, I just ushered that we had to do a big curriculum change for our um, clinical PhD program because of accreditation recommendations when we had our accreditation visit. And so it's like this albatross that looms there while it's going through and you tweak this and committee that and whatever he doesn't even have to deal with it. He just signs off as it comes up, he signs off on it. I do all that, go to the meeting, present the thing and find the person to get the stuff, but then it's done. And I may not do another one for six months or a year even, but when there is one, I do it, you know? And so, and, and also I think I also have come up with a couple of, we we're trying to, how can we recruit better? And that's something that I will talk about in a minute about why issue is different. Um, It's like, what would be a program that would really meet the need of some folks that would also get us more students, you know? And so it's like, I think about that and it's like, well, this is what they really need, or this is how we can really capitalize on that. And so, so it's it's like, you do something well, you end up getting to do it, but you don't have to do it you can do it, it'll pay you for it. So it works well. It, that, that, that's how it came to me. And so right. I think we have three assistant chairs right now.
0: That's a nice uh, uh, apropos. That's a nice uh, relationship that you have with your mm-hmm. uh, chair as well. Here's yep. your opportunity to tell us why is ETSU different, or how is it different? And why should you uh, attend uh, ETSU for uh, psychology? Okay.
1: Um, well, one of the big things is if you go to a large, large university, um, the contact with an actual professor diminishes because you're so far removed. Mm-hmm. Um, now we do have some grad students who teach classes, but, but it's like, if a, like a st- any student that works in a research lab here has one-on-ones with the professor and they know them, they work with them side by side, they're editing things and so forth. They see them. And, and that is sometimes in a larger or more research heavy institution they don't have time. Remember, they're publishing or perishing out there. And so they may not have time and they may not know their undergrads. And so there's a lot of delegation of that. So so the hands-on really getting to do that is, is wonderful here. And also, we have 600 students or a little more than 600, but other institutions may have, you know, 2,000 or 3,000, whatever. If somebody wants research experience they can get it here there mm-hmm. it is possible to get here so that is that is a good thing one of the other things that and i just mentioned the, coming up with the programs that that make us a little different a lot of places maybe most places have um you have a psych major and you maybe have a minor or something like that well we developed several concentrations within that so you can't you can do just a psych major have a minor just like anywhere else but we have some really specified ones if you want to specialize. So we have one that's clinical, but within clinical undergrad, um, within clinical, you have a lot of choices. So if you wanted to tailor it to be clinical child or clinical forensic or clinical, whatever, you have some choices within the program to do that, but it's, it's much more getting you ready to understand that kind of therapeutic relationship and, and more the therapy end. We have behavioral well do we call it still behavioral neuroscience? no, we don't. We have our health sciences, which um several years ago, the MCAT, which is the entrance exam for med school, um, became really half behavioral science it was it, it, like a lot of psychology in it and so forth um. And, and I think it was that they were acknowledging, oh, we might need to be able to work with people. I don't know. And, and what we did is because we have, we have a med school, we have a health science, we're a health science center. So we have a lot of people that come here for that. But a lot of them were majoring in like chemistry or biology or health sciences. And if they decided not to go to med school, they kind of had to start over because those are the reasons they didn't want to go to med school, you know, and so they're, you're halfway in. It's like, I got to start over. and only about 20% of the folks that declare pre-med coming in actually go to med school, you know? Mm-hmm. And so you've got this 80% of folks. And so what we did is um, design a program where you, you have a psychology major, but you've completed all of the prerequisites to take the MCAT and get a med school. And mm-hmm. so it takes a little bit longer, but then it's really intense. But if anywhere along the way, you decide, I don't know that I want to go to med school, you've got a psych degree. And so you can go to psychology, you can go to counseling, you go to social work, you go to whatever. Um, and so that, um, has been very popular here just because of the student population that's coming in anyway. Um, and then we have child, if you want to focus particularly on child. Um, and then we just, just, um, in the last few months, um, created an articulation agreement. It's not a formal degree. It's an articulation agreement with our social work department. And so in the same amount of time it takes you, like if you came in as a freshman, in the same amount of time that it would take you to get a single degree, you get a degree in psychology and a degree in social work. So it's a BSBSW. And, and that sounds, yeah, it sounds it's like, oh, that's a double major. No, it's actually two degrees And the important thing is then you're prepared. If you want to go to to, um, grad school in psychology, you're prepared. But if you want to go in social work, you're prepared for that too. And if you just had a psych degree, a master's in social work would take you two years. If you have a degree in social work, it takes you one year. So in one year, you can be finished with that. And also there are lots of jobs, particularly federal jobs and state jobs that, it doesn't say social work or related degree. It says social work. It's like, mm-hmm. it has to be social work, mm-hmm. but yet, um, a lot of people who went through psychology have the same skills to do those jobs. They just aren't eligible for them. So it really helps to have both of those because you have so many choices, um, with that degree. And so I think that one's going to go crazy because we've been working on it for a couple of years and, you know, we, it's like, is it ready yet? Is it ready yet? Is it ready? Yet? You've already got these people waiting. And so mm-hmm. our flyers are ready. And it's, it's a real thing now. So students can do it. And so, so those are probably our two biggest, biggest things, the, 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 the tailored degrees and then the contact with faculty and ability to do the research.
0: Well, thank you for that summary. I know that I was looking at some of the graduate programs while you were uh, talking and I shared the screen and I didn't go to the undergrad. And so you were focusing more on that undergrad, uh, the flexibility to be able to almost custom tailor mm-hmm. your degree depending on where you go and almost a safeguard. Uh, I'm kind of uh, saying, hey, if you go down this way, this route and all of a sudden you decide no it's not for me it's not like your credits just disappear and you have to start from scratch so I like hearing that right I I did want to return because I'm looking at my little cheat sheet for the questions that I wanted to ask and one of them is I'm sure that there are others who would like to combine their faith education and science to help others in the religious realm what kind of advice can you uh, offer somebody who would like to use their education for healing or helping others in faith
1: um It's interesting that you say that because I I, a fellow just came and actually stayed at my house this last weekend um, that wants to do exactly that. He did uh, he did public health at Berkeley. Now he's doing a master's of public health at the University of Michigan, and um, honestly, heard that first first podcast I did, and he's like, "I want to do that. I I want to combine." (laughs) So, (laughs) So he ended up pulling off the road and sending me an email as he was listening to the podcast and anyway, he ended up down here and he may move here now, but he doesn't finish his MPH till, till May. But, um, but he said that what he has done over the last several months is look for, for particularly faculty who are combining their faith with other things. And it's apparently hard to find, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, just when you think you found it, it's like, yeah, maybe not or whatever. Um, so I think it's finding the person who is doing that and then, navigating with them, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, yes, you can. I I started out, like I said, I went to the Duke program and started my research career kind of that way. Um, You know, and and that was really just kind of bare bones. Here's how to include variables. Here's how to measure them, things like that. Here's things you need to consider. Um, But, and he also went to that program. He went to it last year. I went to it in 2008. And it's so funny because we, we ended up with people that we now share that interest with. In fact, I'm working on an article now with a fella who went to that Duke workshop with me in 2008. We still collaborate. He's in England. Um, and now I'm trying to get him over here as a visiting professor, you know, so, so finding those relationships of like-minded folks, because I think they are kind of rare, um, that, that are really doing that, especially when you get to the, the upper level research science and combining that. Um,
0: Very good advice. I like that. Um, it, it, it's interesting that you say just find somebody who's in the know and in the network and then follow them around until you find somebody like that. It's, it's mm-hmm. difficult and, and you don't know where to go, where to start and, and even what to and ask. And I think or, cold
1: uh, calling is fine. Um, I, there, I have another collaborator. Actually, she's going to this conference that I'm going to leave for Sunday. Um, and I didn't meet her. She, she was a doctoral nursing student at the University of North Dakota, but living in Pennsylvania, of course, Um, and she read an article I wrote, and she just called me out of the blue, and she said, you're going to think I'm crazy, but I love what you're doing. This is exactly what I want to do. I need a research mentor in my doctoral program as I do this project. Are you interested? And I did it, and then ended up on her dissertation committee. Now she's an associate professor at at a university, we still publish together. We're still friends. I didn't meet her in person until, probably, I'd known her for three or four years. I guess mm-hmm. you know, but but I think the thing is because we know we're rare. As we meet other uses, there's mm-hmm. an immediate kinship there. <laughs> sure,
0: <laughs> so, sure, So we usually end the podcast with a few fun questions, and the first okay. one, the first one is, uh, what is your favorite term, principle, or theory, and why?
1: you sure you got time (laughs) (laughs) my own theory actually (laughs) um so some folks and i um at, at uplift mostly are working on well i'm actually i'm actually editing a special um issue of a journal right now called human connection as treatment for addiction And we go from, unfortunately, the pivotal article got rejected because it was too religious. So um, we're having to build it without that. But um, it basically looks at human bodies being created to connect to other people at the biological level with your opioid receptors being hungry for endogenously created opioids, which we have, like when you bond with mom or whatever. And then when those are unfilled, you seek to fill them. And so say a neglected or a neglected child or whatever, then has an exogenous opioid, heroin or Oxycontin or whatever. It's like mother love that you never felt. And so it very much predicts addiction. And so once that happens, then your internal system shuts down. You don't make them anymore. So whenever you stop, yes, it hurts. You have withdrawal, all that kind of stuff but you have these really empty, hungry opioid receptors and you're absolutely miserable, but it is immediately solved by taking them again. And so what we want to see, and you can't do this with rats because they are not altruistic. They do not have church. Um, So with people, hopefully, what we would like to see is if the faith community, and it could be anybody, but I know the faith community best, can pursue someone and care for them enough and draw them into community enough so that they are having those connections that we can restart that endogenous system so mm-hmm. that they no longer need the extra opioids. That's my theory. And that's my favorite. And that's how I want to solve addiction. <laughs>
0: so, so I lied earlier by saying that I wasn't going to share the screen again. I'm going to do it one more time. And okay. <laughs> um, I, I was, while you were describing it, I was looking at your publications under revision manuscripts uh, in preparation. Uh, I see some of these ones that are related to what you're uh, talking about but I don't see Um, it
1: may have it was almost accepted and then it got unaccepted so it may be down there in the others it would be Clements Clements and Swenton
0: uh, it has to be up top because it's chronological. Yeah. I believe yeah. So it might not be listed on here, but yeah, I, I need I probably need to put
1: it back because mm-hmm. it was it, it had gone through reviewers and the and the editor, and it's like we're going to publish it, and then it went up the line one step, and it's like, nah.
0: That's too bad. That's <laughs> so, gotta be hard. But it's okay, my, my yeah.
1: We're we're still revising it. We're going to do it. So
0: okay, it, it will it
1: will it will get out there somehow somewhere, but um. It's... This next
0: this next question is mm-hmm. open to outside of the academic world as well so keep that in mind it doesn't have to stay with As you said if it's the one world. that
1: you wrote me I think I already have my answer
0: uh, it, it might be I'm not sure what is something new that you have learned recently Disc golf Disc golf okay Disc
1: golf Yes <laughs> um... <laughs> Yes and is this, it is, fun? this is this This is, is, this is the, this is, (laughs) this is our, our, our COVID craze. We uh, went on vacation in November, 2020. So many things were shut down. And it's like, why don't we learn to play disc golf? It's outside. You can be distance from people. Anybody can play it, even if they're not good. And our whole family became absolutely fanatical disc golf players. And so I have, I have a disc basket in my backyard for practicing putting. We watch disc golf tournaments on the weekends. Wow. We play every every time it's like just a little, you know, it's warm enough. We go play. And so like there are days where it's two o'clock and it's like, especially in the winter when it's, when the sun goes down too early, you can't play after work. And so it's like, okay, leaving at two, I will work when I get home at five, you
0: know, (laughs) right, right. Disc golf. No. that's, that's fun to, uh, <laughs> that you uh, uh, mentioned that I, I'm sure you can go online and find disc golf courses in your area. Oh, yes. And then, yeah, and then go apparently
1: they're, they're, they, uh, I know a few months ago they were being built about one a week in the country Wow, about one a week. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's catching on
0: <laughs> now that you mention it. I, I can picture two, uh, golf courses near me actually. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, I should pick that up as well. Yeah. Another question, kind of a fun one. Okay. If, if you had the time and money to complete one project or go on one trip, what would you do?
1: Hmm. I think the trip is actually one that my husband and I have been toying about doing, but is looking less likely now. <laughs> and that is riding a train across Europe. Um, (laughs) so we also talked about Canada, which might be a better, better choice this year. Um, but I love, I've done study abroad in England. Well, in the UK twice, mostly Scotland, but some in England. Um, and I absolutely love, love trains. Mm -hmm. And so it's 40th anniversary. It's like, what do you want to do? Well, why don't we go, you know, what if we take a train, like a long train ride? It's like, yeah, let's do that. So that, that, that might be our thing. That might be our thing.
0: It sounds fun. I was over in Scotland and England for a long time, and I got what is called a Eurail pass, and so yes, you could just yes, we did we
1: did Brit Rail with my study abroad classes, yep. hopping on, hopping off, yeah. That was it. fun. Yeah, Love I it.
0: loved it too. Is yep. there anything else that you'd like to uh, bring up or discuss in the podcast?
1: Um. W- well, when I went off on the on the undergrad stuff, did you want to know the grad school too? Because I d- I don't know who you're most marketing to. So, we
0: are marketing mostly to graduate students, but it's nice to know about the undergrad because okay. those who are uh, in, grad, in undergrad considering going to grad school would would probably benefit from that a little right.
1: bit. Right. Well, let, let me say our clinical program is, is a rural primary care health focused program. So what we do is we Train people mostly to embed in primary care offices. And stuff. I mean, yes, some of them will hang out a Shingle and do private practice and all of that, but a lot of them are um, just, we want them to be prepared to just integrate in. And we do a lot of integrated health here because we have so many health programs. So, but, and it is so competitive. All of them are so competitive, but it's really competitive. So, yay apply that's great and i hope you get in somewhere and maybe even here the experimental program which i work more with and i mentioned that it's it's focused on translation and it is um, less competitive but what we do is we have students in particularly to work with a particular person so like i would if somebody doesn't really align with what i'm doing they won't get in. It's got to be like you fit with this person. And so you get really nurtured in the thing that you're doing. So if, if somebody really likes what we're doing, those are the people that we would love to have apply. Um, and I've got one right now, my newest student that just started this year is, is just like a clone me sort of. That's great. Um, but, but, but she's going to be so successful because she's, she's more like, students become more like colleagues than like students in the program. And what we do is we train them. I mean, the whole program, the experimental program is, is to train future faculty members. We know that's what they're going to do. So we have them teach, we supervise. Like I said, I'm doing the practicum. we te- supervise them teaching. So they learn the, the teaching research service just as if you were a faculty member. And so they do all the things that we're doing and the people who have hired them love them like like i said this guy that he took a, he took two years off worked as a campus minister at the university of delaware and when he started applying he's 10 interviews 10 interviews it's like people know that we turn out a really good product <laughs> um, that's good
0: to hear it's good yeah. to receive that feedback as well then you can share that with your department and say yeah. hey this reaffirms everything that we're working toward and yep. the curriculum that we're uh, you know creating year after year so that's right. congratulations yeah um Andy, I appreciate uh, your time and willingness to share your thoughts and advice. Um, Thanks again for uh, taking the time out of your busy schedule. Uh, I think we covered a lot for for everybody on the podcast. So uh, I'll let you get back to work, but thanks again for your help and your support. And um, I wish you luck in all the endeavors that we just talked about throughout the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to the Masters in Psychology podcast. If you want to learn more about our guest or listen to other podcasts, you can visit our website, mastersinpsychology.com, where you can search through all of the schools in the United States that offer advanced degrees in psychology. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, please like, follow, or share.